Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight for a special 4th of July vacation edition of uh, Three Moves Ahead, brought to you by Comcast, uh, is Julian Murdoch. Julian, <laughs> welcome to the show. You make, you make that sound like we might legitimately have a sponsor that was paying us, that was Comcast. God, that is, we should make clear. We should make clear that that is totally not the case. No, that, that's true. Um, th- this this episode is sort of sponsored by Comcast, and that their failure to provide internet service to Corey Banks is one reason why it's just me and Julian tonight. Uh, we were we were going to talk about the various board games you've been playing with uh, with Corey out there in California, correct? Well, well, that was one of the things, but we also have been sort of punting the whole. St- this whole issue of card-based strategy games a little bit, right? It's one that we keep saying, oh, well, we'll wait till we get the stars aligned and have Richard Borg on or whatever. Uh, and so we keep sort of pushing that one down the road. So I've been playing a lot of card-based strategy stuff lately. I figured we might as well go for it, get it out of the way. What have you been playing lately that brought this topic to mind for you? Well, so, I, I mean, most of our listeners that have been playing board games will probably be familiar with Dominion. Uh, it was it was one of the big games of the last two years, um, and it's a deck-building game, right? It's, it's, it's based off of similar kinds of games like Magic and Pokemon in that, uh, you know, the, the, the end result is you have a deck that is somewhat unique to you. But the thing that Dominion introduced was the idea that the game is about building the deck, not about sitting in your basement figuring out the optimal broken power combination to then go play. Uh, and, and so you basically have either, uh, in the case of Dominion, you just sort of have a pure buying mechanic where you're trying to get an engine that gives you enough money to buy more cards for your deck that in, eventually lead you towards victory conditions. Um, which was really quite novel. I don't think anything I'd played had done that before. Um, and, and actually, it made it feel a little bit more uh, like a strategy game, right? Because instead of just having the, you know, I have my deck, you have your deck, we're sitting down and going at it with each other, um, where where there's a tremendous amount of luck uh, in those situations, it really feels like you're building something small, almost like you're playing Civilization or something, where right. you've got a small engine and you're sort of bolting on additional powers and making choices along the way about how you're going to specialize your deck. And so that was a, that was a really innovative concept. And uh, there have been a bunch of pretenders that have followed after it, as often happens in in games, right? It's one person's success breeds a thousand imitators. Um, but this weekend, I finally played one that I actually thought improved on uh, this, which was a game called Ascension, which is the world's most but ugly game I think I have ever played. It's got the world's worst art. Um, but it basically boils down that mechanic of deck building, uh, removes some fiddliness in the rules. You don't have to worry about whether or not you have. Uh, you know, opportunities to buy or a certain number of attacks left or, or things like that. You basically always get to play all of the cards from your hand every turn. Um, but it adds an auction element where everybody's bidding on sort of a scarce resource of five or six cards that are in the center of the board. Um, and that, that adds sort of a deeper strategic element to it because, it, you know, anything that you don't take, you're leaving for your opponents. And there are lots of ways to mess with your opponents. It avoids a lot of the multiplayer solitaire issues that can happen in these kinds of games. Um, because, for instance, you know, many of the game, many of the cards have the ability to blow other cards out of the game. Uh, it's so-called into the void. So you may be pursuing a particular strategy, but then choose on one turn not to necessarily 
advance your own strategy, but to use your uh, use your you know, you know use your powers for evil, if you will, and destroy cards that are on the board that could be useful for your opponent's strategy that you see them evolving. So it got me thinking about sort of what's so appealing about these kinds of card-based systems, and we've seen a lot of spillover into the into the video game strategy world. I mean, we just had Vic Davis on talking about Six Gun Saga, which is a game that I've just enjoyed the heck out of. Now, have you had a chance to play any more of that? Uh, I played I played quite a bit more after after the show for my review for uh, PC Gamer. Yeah, uh, I mean it, it it is a card game. I mean it's it's a card game that's only possible on the PC. But you know it, when I first played it, it's de- it definitely seemed like one of those things where with a few tweaks, uh, you could you could figure out a way to make it play. You know, in real life without the aid of a PC, something you could you could play with someone else. Yeah, I mean there were a few few little fiddly bits. I mean the hidden, the hidden information, information yeah. of the ambush it makes that bet, that a bit difficulty a d- bit difficult. But I've been trying to boil down what it is that I like so much about card games, and I think what I've decided is that you know the the nature of luck in a deck of cards is so fundamentally different than the nature of luck with a die roll, right? And and I think that um, as strategy gamers, you know, we or at least I'll speak for myself. You know, I grew up playing games that involved a die roll and a table. That was that was how I, you know, my I cut my teeth on chip-based war games where, you know, there was a ton of strategy, but in the end, you still had, you know, a 5 to 1, you know, power to defense ratio and you looked that up on a table and you rolled two six-sided dice and it kind of told you where you might end up. Um, or he told you the, you know, the end result. So there was all, almost always that sense of unless you had overwhelming odds and you ended up, you know, in the little red marked K's on the table somewhere where you didn't even have to bother rolling. You know, there was this sense that, well, anything could happen. And, and that's fundamentally different than the luck of a card draw, right? I mean, if I have a deck of 52 cards and I deal half of those cards out and I've seen all that information, I now have really solid insight into what's going to happen with the next card, next set of cards. I know for me, I, I really enjoy getting to know a deck. Uh, the, the feeling that I am improving at the game, I'm learning more about the game, understanding the interactions on, on deeper levels with repeated playthroughs, where I think, you know, with a purely random mechanic, with a, with a, with a die roll, you know, that, that action isn't going to change. You always know, you know, you've got a 1 in 20 chance or a 1 in 6 chance of something. But with with right. with and a deck you know of cards, the consequences, right. yeah. With a deck yeah. of cards, you start you start learning to play this entire game in your head, where basically you're card counting. You know what's out. You know what's in play. What haven't I seen yet? What might he have in his hand? It creates a longer, gentler learning curve, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. Um, I I think there's just there's there's depth to it too, right? The die roll is sterile, right? No matter what, the die roll is always sterile. But but there's something about the and and there's something definitely satisfying about rolling, you know, playing D and D, and you roll the D twenty, and it comes up a natural twenty, and everybody goes huzzah, right? I mean, there is something very satisfying about those those big wins of luck, right? Sitting at the craps table, and you know, you roll this, roll your point, and you put a lot of money on it, right? Those those are satisfying moments, but it's much more satisfying when you've you've sort of you kept track of the odds when you've done that count card counting or in the case of these deck building games when you've sort of built an engine that maximizes the probabilities for you 
so that so that it it becomes less and less random, yeah. right? I mean, that's that's one of the great things about these kinds of deck building games is they all have some mechanic in them that lets you improve card quality, right? And if you've ever played Magic the Gathering or any collectible card game where you are starting with a traditional stack of 60 cards, right? One of the classic strategies is always improve card quality, right? Get more cards in your hand, yeah. have fishing cards that let you get stuff out of your deck, have stuff that, you know, plays with your graveyard or lets you eject weak cards. Um, and, and all of these deck building games tend to have some element of that where you can start getting rid of the stuff that was crappy in the beginning, right? Sort of like upgrading units. You don't have to worry about, you know, having some militiamen because you've managed to actually upgrade him to an infantryman later in the game. Right? They had they have that quality to it. So, so it rewards that strategic insight into building your own probability engine. Right? It makes it, it makes it so much more satisfying. I mean, one, one game that I was also thinking about, um, we can't talk about card-based strategy games and not talk about the Command and Color series, right? Battle Cry, yeah. Memoir Forty Four, Battle Lore, um, and you know that's a that's a series that you only recently had experience with, right? You know, I mean, uh, it was it was kind of Memoir Forty Four uh, that that sort of led me back to board gaming in some ways. You know, I was I was at, I was at PAX East, you know, last year, and um, you know, I remember after after the event was over, Troy Goodfellow and I, Troy Goodfellow and I went down to the uh, Complete Strategist uh, down in Boston, and you know that you know I needed a good starter war game, and that kind of set off a year's explosion of board game hoarding for me. And and you know what was your? I mean, so that was a that was a bridge for you into the board game world. But I mean, how did you did you think about that as strategy game, or or did did the luck turn you off? Well, I mean, it was it was definitely something. My my first several games, I I absolutely loved it. It's a very simple game in the end. The sense that I'd sort of seen, I'd sort of exhausted the possibilities with it, or at least I I, I kind of felt like I had. Uh, it, it pushed me away from it a little bit. Right. Um. But but by the same token, you know the the big meaty strategy games that that you know we talk mostly about on the show. All of them generally have some element of luck. It's just hidden, right? You don't see the die roll, right? It's you. You sort of know your odds going in, and what happens happens. But it it rarely has the clarity of that old table lookup, even. Right? It, it's often as much more opaque than that. And I find that frustrating, right? I, I it, it's you know everybody likes it when you win that side of the battle, but um, you know when you're playing a game that doesn't seem to have the obvious luck. I mean, I'm thinking of. Uh, you know, all that Men at War Allied Assault we played, right? Mm -hmm. There's clearly luck involved there because you can do the exact same maneuver a couple times and you'll get slightly different results, right? You can yeah. Your sniper isn't going to always one-shot kill, but sometimes he one-shot kills. Um, so there's clearly factors in there and there's presumably some giant engine under the surface that's covering, you know, mixing together cover factors yeah. and penetration and blah, 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 blah. But then there's some little element that's luck. Um, and I actually tend to find that quite frustrating when I can't see how much of that is luck. See, I, I will, I will give it a lot. Of, I will give games like that a lot of passes because at least I, I like to imagine that it's not luck that's governing a lot of this. I mean, yes, there's there's some element of its luck, Wait, but the it's knowledge fate. that <laughs> no, the knowledge that uh, the knowledge that somehow you know it's there's an armor penetration table at work under the surface. You know where this shot hits on this slope of the armor, it's going to penetrate. That's not luck. That's that's physics, and that's totally different than that's totally different than a die roll. Uh, even if even if it's not, it's. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's it's Grognard fallacy, right? Where you know, well, somebody modeled that, and therefore I'm willing to accept whatever the engine spits out. 
But I mean, I, I get, I get what you're saying. I, I get, I get that the satisfaction is completely different when you exercise some sort of nominal control over the outcome events, where there's where there's sort of a direct relationship between your actions and the consequences where it doesn't feel like it's right. run through it's run through some sort of arbitrary counting machine that's you know can screw right. you or not so so yeah so i mean that definitely has that quality but when you're playing something like when you're playing something like memoir 44 i mean did you initially immediately see ah we're playing off you know this common deck there's a card a card counting quality to it yeah no i didn't or did you never start thinking about it well, within within a couple of games, I started thinking about it. But my very my very first reaction, it was it was all surprise. I mean, the first time that uh, there's this card, Medics and Mechanics, where you know you roll a bunch of dice, and if they come up if they come up a certain thing, you can basically replenish wounded squads and then use them for action. So the first time that came up, when I had a bunch of enemy squads, you know, on the ropes, and you win you win Memoir Forty Four games by basically killing a lot of the enemy. I had a lot of squads that I was this close to wiping out, and uh, you know, MK plays medics and mechanics, which I'd never seen before, and it was this complete game changing moment. Uh, completely, completely reversed it on me. You know that that card right. appears a couple games, you know. You realize you realize now there's like maybe two of those in the deck. It's going to come up, and you start waiting for it. But that's that's just be, that's just the process of how you begin to develop how you play memoir. Right. I mean, the other game that comes to mind that you and I played a bunch of both online and in print is Panzer General Allied Assault, yeah. right? Which has um, has sort of a pre-constructed deck quality to it, right? You have you have cards that are both your units and your uh, you know, sort of, and your combat advantage, yeah, and that's also an special powers, one. and 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 you're not building a deck there. It's, I mean, I guess maybe there's a way to do that. I've never delved so deep into it that I was starting to try to figure out how to build my own deck. Right? Each scenario will generally tell you, right. you know, oh, you're playing the Germans, you use these cards, but not those cards, right? And it's it's somewhat based on the setup of the board as well. So. It's it's a static deck in that sense, but you definitely have that chance before you start the game to like spread out the deck and say, oh, okay, I know that I've got these four anti tank, I've got you know these four heavy tanks coming in, I'm really light on infantry, whatever, right? You get to sort of look at your forces, look at the powers you're going to be able to use. Um, and sort of construct a strategy and know like if you're halfway through the game and you haven't gotten any of your heavy tanks out that you know, you have this good chance of having a big end run with those heavy tanks, right? And that's that's a kind of card counting that I find I, I find that really deeply satisfying when I get it right, which isn't necessarily all that often. Well, very much so. And there's there's the other you know card element of uh, Panzer General, which is you've got the same cards can have many different effects within the battle, right? You can use them. You know, you can use them as a I know I'm not going to muddle some of this, but um, you know, you can basically use them as like action points to call in like, you know, that th- that will basically call in special abilities. Uh, you can use them to sort right. of, you know, basically tip the scales of an, of an, of battle one way or the other. But the the thing is, you know, a lot of these cards they fill they fill these same roles. So if you begin depleting, if you begin depleting your hand really rapidly, you know, putting everything into an attack. You are you are stealing from yourself at a later date, right? Right, and that's that's a, that's a new element to me in card games. I mean, I you know I played a ton of Magic back when it came out, and 
And for all the complexity that gets bolted into that game and the thousands of cards that have been printed, the core mechanic is actually really very simple, right? I mean, most cards do one thing. That's the default, right? Yeah. Mana is power source, and monsters have attack and defense and attack. And, you know, you have, you have these sort of monolithic categories of cards that do things. And we've seen this introduction of more and more games where cards can do four or five things, right? And, and uh, you know, another game that comes to mind uh, very similarly would be 1960 Making of the President, yes. right? Which is fundamentally a card game, right? The board is really nothing more than a big scorekeeping system. Right, everything actually plays out through the application of these cards, which have special abilities, or they can be used to power campaigning actions. Right, they they have multiple, and so you're constantly making that choice of how do I allocate that, and you know maybe that's what I'm getting down to is the you know the, the satisfaction to me with a game. We've we've said this many times on the show is do I have an interesting decision to make? Right, to me that's the the nature of a good strategy game. Am I constantly being faced with this set of interesting decisions, right? And you don't get that with, that's not what a first person shooter is about, right? That's, that's a different kind of enjoyment, different kind of gaming. Strategy gaming to me is always about that constant presentation of satisfying choices. And, uh, and these sort of more complex card games um, like Panzer General Allied Assault, like uh, 1960 making the president, or I would argue like, you know, this game that I was playing last night, Ascension, um, you know, those really present that in spades. Yeah. And we should, we should get into those decisions a little bit because one of the things I really like about sort of about these, these car games where you're, where you're basically limited to what you've got in your hand is they also create these, they they very they very easily sort of t- turn you against yourself. You know, we've all sat there in 1960, staring at our staring at our hand, and trying to think of the exact perfect order and way to play these cards. You know, where you know it's just like boom, like four in a row, where you just like you know clean you know run the table on your opponent, and you, you think right. you know if I can just if I can just find this right way to do this, everything's gonna everything's gonna be perfect. And this this happens in a lot of card games where you begin kind of sabotaging yourself because you start hanging on to these cards. You you know you, you get these pet cards. You get these pet ideas that you know if you can just if you can just find a place to use this one card, you can turn this entire thing around. And so you'll start you know tr- kicking the can down the road, waiting for that magic moment that lets you use your best card to the maximum effect. You know I, I think it's, it's a little different than when all the pieces are just there on the board. And they're limited to, you know, some basic rules. You know, there it's kind of right. there the decision's kind of straightforward. You know, I mean, there's there's nothing special you can hope to do. You've got you've got what you you've got what these units can accomplish, and that's it. But cards, you know, when one of them shows up in your hand, there's there's always that temptation to sort of hang on to it, to use it not now, but at a, at some sort of undetermined perfect moment later. Right, right. Which which has that that sort of resource harboring quality to it, which which you know you leads to a lot of second guessing, right? Inevitably, it's like, oh, maybe I should have played this earlier. Maybe I should have played this later, right? And and those are those are great games when that happened. Now you've been playing, um, you've been playing Pride of Nations, is yeah, that right. Now doesn't that that has some card mechanic in it, doesn't it? It does. It's got, it's got a bit of like a a card mini game. Uh, it only it only pops up in this one aspect of the game, but it's it's incredibly cool. The way the way Pride of Nations works is you know it's a Victorian air strategy game, 
you know, grand strategy. You're one of the great powers of, of the world, uh, you know, in the 19th century. And as you might expect, most of the time you're, you're, you know, doing, you have your standard diplomatic options with other countries, you know, trade packs, alliances, rites of passage, you know, all the, all the standard, you know, diplomatic garbage. Uh, What's really cool, though, is that occasionally a crisis will appear, and that doesn't work within the traditional diplomatic framework. A crisis comes up, so say, um, you know, one thing that happens a lot is very early in the game, uh, Prussia and the United States have a crisis over Samoa uh, in the South Pacific. So that can't be resolved through diplomacy. Instead, what you've got is now basically a card game where there's a pot. And in the pot, there's prestige, and then you've got a deck. You've got you've got a hand. You got a hand of cards that let you choose different that let you choose different options for nego- for negotiating your way through this crisis. So you got some very conciliatory ones, you know, like you know, just play for time, take it before the international community, hold a press conference, you know. You've also got some, and this is only in the this is only in the sort of diplo- diplomatic part of the game. Um, it's it's. It's like an annex to the diplomatic part of the game. Like the okay. crisis comes up, and it's it doesn't even you don't even access it through your diplomacy window. It's completely external to the regular diplomatic model. Hmm. Uh, it's hmm. yeah, so it sort of exists independently of what your relationship. So it's already like a, it's, is. it truly is like a mini game. Yeah, and you know, as the the really cool thing is there's cards that let you sort of increase the pot. For prestige and prestige is the is the ultimate object of the game. So whoever wins a crisis gets the vast majority of the prestige that's in the pot, and whoever loses uh, just makes very little progress toward their toward their goal. So they, you know, it's, you basically helped your enemy uh, get closer to winning. So the really cool thing though is both sides are picking are picking their cards, and they're played round by round against each other. And you don't know what the other guy picked. So you get in this prisoner's dilemma type situation where if you try a really aggressive card that's supposed to like sort of bluff the guy out of the game and he's doing the same thing, you can end up at war. Like there is no round two of the crisis resolution. These two cards Hmm. come together and they manage to trigger a war. Yeah. But if you're the only one who does it, you've got a really good chance of basically claiming the whole pot. You know, he's like, let's talk about this. And you're like, you know, giving an ultimatum and you've got your army mobilized. You win the pot. That's awesome. Because those those kinds of prisoners dilemma uh, negotiations are very difficult to model. I can't think of very many games that I think have done that well. I have never seen it. Um, and that's and that's one of the things I, I love about it so much is is that I think we've talked a bit about this before on the show, where strategy game diplomacy, strategy games in general, can maybe sometimes be too rational, you know, compared compared to the way well, strategy really game works. diplomacy in general in general sucks. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that on the show. We plenty certainly of have. Times. I mean, that's not a <laughs> let's not pull punches. I mean, it's very rare that it's even remotely interesting, much less satisfying. Right, and and what a lot of times was missing though is a satisfying chaotic element. This is why everyone likes the personalities in Civ so much, right? Where you know, oh, that Montezuma, he's just going to go batshit crazy on you, and there's nothing you can do. But you know, you can't always have that sort of personality. Well, here you here you've got a mechanic now, you know, through these cards, through these you know postures you strike in these crises. Um, You've got you've you've got a you've got a way for the game to create really risky, 
really risky behavior that is oftentimes sort of counter to what your overall strategy is supposed to be, right? Like, you don't want to fight a war, but now the crisis comes and you're looking at that pot of prestige and you think, screw it. I think, you know, I think I can, I think I can get, right. I think, I think I can get it all. And right. then you can, you end up with these, you know, bizarre, like, well, I didn't expect to fight this war. And that's very cool because too often in strategy games, you kind of always fight the war that makes sense. Right, and you often are fighting the war that's directly in front of you, and you're not thinking the you're not thinking one step out either. I mean, that's awesome. You know, another sort of ancillary problem, which is that you're often only fighting what's in front of you. Right. But that, yeah, you're right. That idea that that you're willing to change your strategy because you see a short term opportunity, that also is fairly rare in strategy games. Yeah. Right. I mean, I can't count how many games of Civilization I've lost because I was. Or have not done well in because I was pursuing, you know, a science strategy here, and then I saw sort of an opportunity for a little military victory over here in the corner, and then thirty-five turns have gone by, <laughs> you know, and I've been I've totally screwed the pooch. Well, that's I mean that's that's always a struggle with Civ. Uh, you know, I, I sort of experiment with the different game lengths because on the one hand, I like seeing games sort of evolve in interesting directions. But if you're kind of playing Civ by standard rules on a challenging difficulty level, it's really one of those games where you can't be you can't be distracted. You can't just let the game flow. You you've kind of got to you know force it to to work within the strategy you've set. Yeah, you have to bend it to your will. Absolutely, which is cool. Which is cool, but it can be a bit. I don't know. Sometimes you just want to go after the shiny object. Right. Right. I mean, this actually brings up another mechanic I wanted to talk about, which which. Again, you tend to see mostly in card games, um, which is the idea of drafting. Um, like, I mean, when you were at my house last, we played a lot of this game, Seven Wonders, right. which is fundamentally a drafting game, right? There's no hidden information. Everybody gets a hand of cards. You pick one, pass it along, right? So it's, you know, it, it's extraordinarily simple. It's it's the primary way that most people play collectible card games because it doesn't require yeah. a huge library, right? Everybody starts it with the, an even playing field and the only randomness truly is sort of what you got dealt off the top, yeah. right? And and the thing that's so interesting about drafting mechanics, and I haven't seen this done particularly well in any video game yet, um, is not the, uh, you know, the the building your your deck through the draft. I mean, that's that's a fun, entertaining decision making process, right? It passes that that critical test of do I have an interesting decision to make? Sure, you got handed a bunch of cards. How do these fit with the cards I've already made? But there's the information component of it that I find so fascinating. And this is why I'm still fascinated by Bridge, even though I'm just terrible at it, um, is I love games where, and maybe it's not just games, I love situations where passing hidden information is the key to success. Yeah. Right? And um, Seven Wonders doesn't do this in a, in a team format at all, right? So you're, you're, trying to devol- you're trying to discern information from the person to your left. Um, but, but it, it, it doesn't carry very long because everybody's playing everything all the time. Right. So it's not like there's much opportunity for hidden information. You can just look to your left and your right and you see what they're building on their tableau and you can say, ah, this guy's going after science and this guy's going after military. I should not pass him something he's going to screw me with next, etc. Um, other games that do drafting, um, whether it's in the traditional collectible card game, mode um they tend to have this element of trying to communicate either with a partner who's you know either to your left or right or across the table or whatever 
um, or where you're, you're delib deliberately trying to to force your opponent to do something, right? You pass them yeah. a particularly great card, you know, well into a draft, and they have to now all of a sudden second guess their strategy. Like, oh my god, I just got handed this bomb. How can I not build my entire army around that? Um, you know, in, in the strategy game world, the core strategy game world, the only time you usually see this is in um, in sort of miniatures wargaming, there are often drafting setups where people can sort of bid on particular types of units. Um, of all games, HeroScape, right, which is most people consider very much a kid's, you know, introductory beer and pretzel strategy game, um, had a great drafting mechanic where, you know, you, people take turns bidding on certain, you know, certain units to bring out onto the field. Everybody's fishing out of the same pool, yeah. right? And so you have to adjust your strategy very much. And and in, in, in any good drafting system, you can basically lose the game in the draft, right? You draft really crappily. You have no synergies in your army or no synergies yeah. in your cards. And all of a sudden, you're just not in the game. Um, I mean, can you think of that? I, I can't think of any video games that have successfully implemented that kind of drafting system. No, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking, and I, I really can't. And I think part of, I think one reason for that is, I mean, I, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think, I think one reason of that would be that there's again this sort of de-emphasis of of multiplayer. You know, where, where yeah. I mean, single player game that's not all that satisfying. Yeah, yeah. and so you got so many games that are designed where, because I, I mean, we've all we've all seen those reports where you know how many people actually play their games, you know, multiplayer. Not enough, really. So a lot, of, I think, a lot of games are developed where. You know, it's, it's going to be up against an AI, and I think drafting mechanics are one of those things where it's really much more fun if you're playing that you're 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 playing that sort of mental game against a flesh and blood opponent where right. you're trying to sort of lure them down a certain a certain road. Right, right, and and you know, I mean, it gets to you know some of this is why I still love games you know that have these sort of long tail strategy components like Neptune's Pride or Travian, Travian. Um, where you actually get some of that social element in the multiplayer yeah. game, there's certainly no opportunity for it in an RTS, right? You're too frantically trying to actually make the game happen um, to really trade any of that back and forth. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe there's an opportunity there because that drafting mechanic, that's why Seven Wonders is so satisfying, right? And it, it it's definitely the favorite, you know, it's, it's the current, uh, you know, it's the current golden child and, board game land everybody's talking about it everybody's playing it i'm sure i'll be sick of it in a year yeah <laughs> probably maybe it's just because i'm playing so much pride of nations lately but I, I look at a lot i look at a game like seven wonders and i see sort of how card game a lot of times card mechanics are sort of used to control very basic things like um you know production capacity uh you know what what you are building all these all these sort of economic decisions that in strategy games aren't abstracted at all, and I think very oftentimes to their detriment. Where instead of abstracting them, it's no, let's you know, let's count copper mines, let's let's count gold mines, let's let's look at input input rates versus output rates, and you know, I think one of the things that that board games you know you use cards very wisely for is they they enable you to sort of play these play these economic games, these production games. But without getting bogged down in chits, without getting bogged down in tables, uh, having to play with a scratch pad next right. to you. Like, again, I mean, you know, take a drink, uh, War of the Ring. 
you know, the the simple right. act of sort of building your army. Yeah, there are there are dice that let you do that, but really one of the most effective ways you have of very quickly marshalling your forces and sort of bringing you know mobilizing mobilizing the nations is through cards. Right. You know, and in in computer strategy land, I, that's generally all handled through collection of raw materials, you know, piece by piece, and then they're converted into units at a cost. Right. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, I guess we, uh, you know, it's to some extent we have to go back to Vic Davis here because I think he has, he sort of recognized this, um, you know, clearly in Armageddon empires and definitely in his latest game, which is you know, his latest game is just a card game. Effectively. I don't say that in any way, uh, you know, deprecatingly. I mean, I think it's, yeah. Awesome card game. I love it. I played the crap out of it. Um, you know, less so in Solium Infernum. Um, but but in those two games, he's definitely sort of recognized that though that mechanic, I think, makes more sense for those kinds of decisions. Well, it can certainly it can certainly be a hell of a lot more fun for for strategy gamers. And I mean, to go right. to go back to Pride of Nations for one moment, I, I think there's there are a lot of strategy games where I find myself really caught up in this dilemma between there's the things I like to do in strategy games, you know, where do I send my troops? You know, who do I point to command? Uh, you know, what, am, what am I going to do with, uh, you know, what am I going to do about the German question? These are all, these are all exciting questions for me, but a lot of the games that do the best job of bringing me those dilemmas also bring me all this math and economics that I don't really want to do, you know, want to deal with. And, right. uh, you know, I think one... Well, and then you get even further down the path towards games which are fundamentally economic simulators. You know, Victoria 2 uh, comes to mind, or yeah. uh, East India Company comes to mind, right? Which, to my mind, victory in those games is about understanding the economic simulation really more than anything else. Um, right, and the, I, I think that, the you know, that's that's a danger. I think Victor, I think Victoria 2 definitely, definitely runs into it where there's always this desire, you know, to make the world even more realistic, to make, you know, to, to make it basically behave more and more like history, even though that increasingly, you know, forces you to include gameplay that maybe isn't what drew any of us to strategy gaming, you know, that... Right, I don't actually, I don't actually want to simulate running the East India Company, right? Or, you know, building the Victorian Empire, including yeah. figuring out where to put the well, glass factory. And if I do, right? I would rather play... <laughs> and, and if I do, I think I would rather play a dedicated game about that. I think I would rather play, you know, Sid Meier's Railroads, or I would rather play, uh, you know, Patrician. You know, trading, you know, right. trading with the Hanseatic League. That, you know, that's that's a little more focused. But, but going back to cards for one side, you know, going back to cards, I, I think that... You know, Vic Davis made a very smart judgment about kind of what maybe strat what may what maybe strategy gamers were lacking with a lot of advanced PC strategy titles, and really sort of identified again. You know, the 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 important element of bringing the interesting decisions back to the fore, not burying them behind you know a you know a ton of math, a ton of you know statistical analysis, but just you know getting the you know clear cut A versus B choices. Right back in your face. Right, but the interesting thing about that game is that he actually, uh, he actually essentially outsources 
the the power structure to a random number generator, which I still find so fascinating, right? I mean, we talked about how cards give you this opportunity to really have multiple factors going on at once. And in that game, it's, you know, can I use it as a whole card to win battles? What's my special power? What's the dude actually do on his own? Um, and, and, you know, it turns out that that's fundamentally randomized, right? There's just like a bunch of lookup tables, right? And it's like, oh, we'll grab one from column A and one from column B and one from column C. Well, hang on. And it turns out to be an ace that also happens to be an incredible superpower and a big fat gunslinger at the same time. Hang on, though. How And it works. How, uh, it does, but how randomized is that? Because my understanding is that I know that the card and then its special action, I know those are randomized. But right. it's all the other stuff, the hit points, the cash value and, of the card. No, no, no. The, so the hit points and the cash values, those stay. So, so like, the big fat, like, the Apache is never going to cost seven in one game and right. zero in and the, the And the Outlaw is never going to be a leader, you know, for something. Right, yeah. exactly. But, but, the, but the power on the card, it's value in combat, the, the whole card value. Um, yes. And th- those are randomized to the card itself. Right. Right. So you've got two elements of the four or five on right. each card that are totally randomized. But those are the things that make those interesting trade-offs. Those are the 1960 making of the president kind of trade-offs where you're sitting here going, ooh, I could totally win the debate if I save this. But on the other hand, I could really screw Nixon if I play it right now, right? Those those are the really interesting trade-offs. And he outsourced that to the random number generator, and it's still awesome. Well, I think one of the reasons, though, it's still awesome is I don't see, I don't think it fundamentally changes what we were talking about the card. I think you just end up sort of splitting the list in your head between what powers have I seen out versus what, you know, what characters have I seen out. So I think it just sort of changes that growing familiarity. Like now, like you start, you start looking now for, for two things instead of one, you don't just look for a card. Now you're looking for characters and then you're also looking for certain powers, certain abilities. Right. So, so I, I feel like, I feel like the, the, there's a bit of an elephant in the room, which is poker. Okay. Right. Because, because I, I, you know, I mean, we don't, certainly this is not what this podcast is usually about, but if I went through my list of, you know, 20 hardcore strategy friends, both online and in the real world. And I, I had to put a line in the sand of what is one game that I know effectively every single one of them would be more than happy to sit down with five other guys and play. It would be poker for real money. Doesn't even have to be. And and the real money thing is really just a matter of emotional investment, right? Yeah. I mean, the trick to poker is you you play for enough money that you care, but not enough money that you care, <laughs> right? Right. That's right. the trick. Right. It has to be enough that you care if you win, but not enough that you really care if you lose. Um, because in either side of it, it's no fun. It's no fun playing for pennies. And in my case, it's no fun playing for $20 bills, right? Cause that's just going to get ugly fast. Yeah. Um, but poker has had this huge resurgence in the last 10 years. Um, and, and a, a huge part of it, I think was the rise of online poker where you could play like crazy and all sorts of strategy gamers that I know who didn't have a social circle where you played poker, right? Cause let's face it. Most of us strategy gamers, you know, if I'm going to be stereotypical, we're all kind of nerds in the corner, right? Yeah. We were all uh, speak. I'll speak for myself. You know, I was the fat kid with glasses, right? That was that was the shtick, right? So there was no chance that, like, in college, I was going to get invited to the cool poker right. game. Never going to happen, right? I was playing D and D. I knew where I belonged, um, but all of us nerds that I know 
kind of got hooked on poker at some point, right? Because there are interesting strategic choices to make on a constant basis with this added element of socialness or, you know, the social interaction, the, the, you know, looking across the table and trying to read somebody, right? And that added this whole new element to it. So we saw a lot of games start adopting cards, I would say, in the last 10 years because of that rise of poker. And, and, and in many cases, explicitly, I mean, you know, Six Gun Saga has a poker game in yeah. it. And I can think of quite a few other games that have a poker game in it. I mean, Rob Davio ran a great role-playing game where he based the combat system on poker hands in the Old West, right? It's a it's a really satisfying, uh, well-known trope, right? Everybody gets to that system, kind of like everybody knows how to play Yahtzee, right? You can just sort of... They, oh, we're going to use Yahtzee to determine this. We're going to use a Jenga tower to right. determine this, and everybody understands what to do. Do you feel like poker has been an influence for good in strategy games? You know, I mean, I, I am frankly just not the person to ask about that because I'm not a poker player. I mean... You're the outlier? I made this whole speech, and you're the outlier. You know, I, I, I really am. I, I think... I never, I never did quite find a, find a poker group, and I was, I, you know, when, when a lot of it moved online... I know I just didn't enjoy the core game enough to, to you know to start bothering with that, but I'm inter- I'm interested that that you draw this that that you think that that you draw this connection between the rise of poker and then the rise of these really innovative card systems. Uh, that well, I mean, we saw like like you know back in the day when I started playing Magic and there was no idea that anybody could make money playing Magic: The Gathering, right? It, you know, there was this whole group of players in Boston um, who went on to become the you know, quote unquote magic pros, right? They got flown to Tokyo to right. go play a game. And that was the amazing thing was like, oh my God, I'm playing a card game and now they're going to fly me to Tokyo. And then all of a sudden, some of these guys were making thirty, forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year just playing magic and getting flown around to play magic games. And that simultaneously hit with this rise of sort of TV poker and online poker. And let, let's face it, the fundamental skills are not all that different. You know, fundamental understanding of probability wins you 80% of most poker games, right? And then you get into the big leagues where now everybody's got the basic understanding of probability and it's about bluffing and risk-taking and understanding your opponents and reading them. And and then a certain class of players survives in that leagues, right? And But we saw an overwhelming majority of good or i would say the the exceptional professional magic players go on to play professional poker that was the path i mean we i i can think of a dozen names off the top of my head now whether they've done well there is kind of not the point my point is just that it, it was sort of like like nerds found this other part of popular culture that had money associated with it and so we glommed onto it and I feel like gamers have kind of readopted poker as one of our games. That's an interesting idea. I, I think, you know, listening to you talk about poker and sort of the way the way sort of high stakes poker works. I mean, again, my thoughts flit immediately back to Pride of Nations and the way that they create which is really high stakes. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the way they create the way they create these incentives to bluff, to, to you know, to sort of increase the risk, to try to chase the other guy out of the hand. Uh, but you know, I, I think that the the thing that's lacking is is again part of the, one of the things that makes poker work so well is that there is that there's that face to face interaction. I mean, I don't know, you've you've played a fair bit of online poker, haven't you? 
Oh yeah, and that's that's totally the problem with online poker is that um you know, there's there's no the only information you have is the information that's on the table. Right. Now, that's an incredibly difficult skill to learn, right? I mean, I'm not a great strategy player. I'm a pretty good poker player. Um and the only reason I'm a pretty good poker player is because I can handle figuring my outs out of 52, right? It's it's the same deck it's always been we're always playing with one deck of cards. Yeah. If I'm at a table with eight people, I've seen certain number of cards, etc. I, I, that's not math. That's way too difficult for my fractured little brain, right? If I go into a poker game sober, I'm at least going to do okay because I understand the math. And most people who sit down to play poker don't, right? So that's the fundamental nerd advantage, right? <laughs> so that if you're willing to spend a day learning the tables and figuring out the math, you're going to win 80% of most crappy poker games. Um, and that was very satisfying for a while, but the online poker thing, which unfortunately I think has largely been killed, or some of it's been killed because of legislation in the U.S. or enforcement in the U.S., um, what that actually did was provide an engine for refining your game, right? And and this is the fundamental thing about that, that I still think is great about online implementations of board games and card games is that when they're really good, they let you play so many more games. Yeah. Right? I mean, you and I, you know, it's what, it's eight, eight o'clock at night here in San Francisco. You know, if we wanted, we could fit in three or four games of 1960 before we got too tired to play anymore tonight. Yeah. If we wanted to play quickly, if we actually had the game in front of us, we could fit in one. Yeah. Right? That and would just be barely. it. Right. Because, right. Because you've got somebody else doing the shuffling and the dealing and the moving the pieces around. Right. Online poker, you can play hundreds of hands an hour if you're at a fast table. In a real poker game, you're going to play, I don't know, 30 or 40 hands an hour because people are talking and they're, you know, people have to think and make decisions. But you can set up an online system, basically says three seconds, make your decision. It's speed chess. Yeah. Right. And that, what I think that did was force a whole generation of people to learn the math really quickly. And I think that that in general has been, I, I think it's been good for me as a gamer. I know um, tons of gamers that, are you know fundamentally addicted to playing online poker when they can, even if it's for no money, right? Because it's just satisfying to make that many decisions that quickly. Yeah. So maybe a giant diversion, not sure. But I think that there's something there's some connection to it. I think we look at games like we look at games like Dominion, we look at games like Seven Wonders, you know, clearly, you know, big meaty card games are a, a genre in themselves in the board game world right now. And I think that they I think it's related, right? Yeah, and I mean, hopefully, we'll see more of those mechanics entering PC gaming. But you know, I I don't know. Sometimes I sometimes I wonder. You know, as we do this show, you know, you and I sort of straddle this divide between you know serious strategy games and then uh, serious board games. Right. But I wonder. I mean, are we are we really the exception? I mean, how many people how many people pass freely between those worlds? Well, I mean. you know, you can, you know, I go to the big board game conventions on a regular basis and, you know, PAX dwarfs any, the size of any, you know, big board game convention. Um, you know, so from that perspective, it's fairly easy to say. And, and certainly if you look at where the money is, I mean, a really successful board game, like, you know, a blockbuster first printing is 20 or 30,000 units. Right? No. 
that would be considered you'll never work in this town again sales for a video game. Right. <laughs> you know, so I mean, you know, the, the equivalent sales numbers for the board gaming world are what good indie games do in the PC world. Yeah. Right? Um, now, not not all games are like that. Like Settlers of Catan has sold something like 10 million units. Right. That's that's it. Right. That's the big leagues, you know, and then. You know, the the if you're gonna look at board games, you have to go and say, okay, well, what's the equivalent of the big mainstream Call of Duty, Halo style games? And that's Trivial Pursuit, right? Which sold tens of millions of copies, right? And countless variations and sequels. But but when we're talking about like core strategy games, I mean, you just have to look at something like when you know Advanced Squad Leader goes to do new printings of the core book. I think that they. I think they bank like two, three hundred before they'll do a new printing. And sometimes you have to wait a year, right? So it's not like that there's a big backlog of thousands of gamers dying to dive in. I think it's becoming a lot more mainstream because you can walk into Barnes and Noble and you can find four versions of Settlers of Catan on the shelf. Yeah. I went into Barnes and Noble this weekend and I saw Dominion on the shelf, right? So it's clearly becoming broader and more mainstream, and I think that's awesome. I think actually the prevalence of, of iOS devices has helped that, right? Smartphones and stuff like that are natural bridges to board games because they can be paused and they're asynchronous often and they can be played, you know, in, in fits and starts. Um, so so I, I think that there those kinds of crossovers are happening, but I think it's not... I, I, I think it would be wrong to somehow think that, uh, you know, secretly every person out there playing Civilization also has a big board game collection. Uh, I'm just not sure that's true. Yeah, and the way I see it, like, cards do cards do a couple really cool things. One is that the card itself is a fantastic vessel for artwork and flavor. And I think in I think in video game strategy there is sort of an expectation that most of that is going to come through a graphics engine of some sorts. Um, right. right. You know, where, I mean, or, you know, even if, even if it's as simple as a map with a lot of icons on it, there's this, there does seem to be this hesitation to, you know, take a lot of information and put it on a big, rich, richly illustrated card. You're just, you know, you're going to see a lot more counters than you are cards. Well, I, I mean, and, and and we, I mean, we rave about it on this podcast when a strategy game has good art. Not so much that like, oh my god, did you see the models for this unit in StarCraft? But you know, we probably spent four or five minutes rambling on about how much we love the maps and cutscene art in Shogun. Right. Right. <laughs> Right, and that was fundamentally the same art you're going to put on a card, right? Those were paintings, right? Some, but some, somebody who graduated from fine art school made those maps and those cutscene paintings. Those, those were not 3D modeling students from the University of San Francisco. Yeah. Um, right. So, so I, I think gamers tend to appreciate that kind of good art when it shows up. Right? I mean, we're all suckers for that. Yeah. I mean, I want cloth maps in my games, like everybody else. But I, I think I think the other thing that I that makes video game strategy probably resistant to wider adoption of card mechanics is just it, it seems like there there there's such emphasis on because you have this machine that can calculate a tremendous amount of information 
there's this there's this real hesitance to take that information out you know like you know to abstract it the way a card allows you to abstract so many so many you know so many concepts a you know a card's just there and you can play it for an effect whereas a lot of a lot of strategy games it's just you know give me more information don't you know don't take that away don't take don't take that granular detail because that's what that's what i want from from a computer strategy game right well i mean and this actually gets me back to you know an argument that I you know I've get tons of hate mail for already, but um, you know I look at what XBLA has done for strategy gamers. I look at what smartphones have done for strategy gamers. To some extent, what the Nintendo DS did for strategy gamers, right? I mean, Advance Wars, right? That was one of my favorite tactical war games of all time. Still, is, is you know Advance Wars DS, Dual Strike, I guess it was, um, right? And part of the reason those three platforms have been so great. Is because they forced this simplification on us, right? I don't really give a. I mean, hey, I love playing StarCraft as much as the next guy. I didn't really need the giant fancy cutscene menus that no. you know showed up between every. I mean, you know, I didn't really need the beautiful three-dimensional star maps and Dawn of War two. I mean, they're pretty. I love looking at them, right? Yeah. And even something like Sense of a Solar Empire, one of my favorite, you know. RTSs of all time, right? I still fire that thing up on a regular basis, even if I'm playing a solo. Yeah. You know, fundamentally, you could have played that with chits on a board as well. In that case, those guys had such great balance between making it look pretty and making it work well that it was just really satisfying all the way around, sort of like driving a beautifully made car, right? I mean, it's all the pieces worked right, but that's kind of the exception. Most of the time... That crap's getting in the way of the game or keeping me from getting to the game. And these smaller platforms, I think, have been a real boon to core strategy gaming. I've been playing the crap out of this game on my iPad called Great Little War Game, um, which is a simple turn-based strategy game. I mean, iOS only? nothing particularly... iOS only. Um, well, I, I say that, I may be wrong. Maybe you can get it for Android. They should make it for Android. It's it's a great, straightforward turn-based strategy games. You know, infantry, tanks, air, snipers, howitzers. I mean, really straightforward. It's kind of in the genre of worms in terms of yeah. its its sort of tongue-in-cheekness. Um, but the core gameplay is super solid, and the scenario design of the core twenty, I think it's twenty or twenty-five level campaign. It's just some of the best single-player campaign strategy gaming I've ever done, right? And it's all very simple moving pieces, but you end up with these battles that can take an hour or two on your iPad or your whatever um, in this asynchronous turn-based game, right? That game would just not get made if the PC was the only platform. Yeah. Because somebody would look at it and they'd be like, well, this is too simple. Right, and I'm sitting here with like 14 amazing strategy games from the latest Steam sale on my big fancy laptop that's got an i7 in it, and my laptop is sitting here playing, you know, crappy HBO reruns while I'm playing this game on my iPad. Right, I mean that sort of speaks volumes. Yeah, you know, after after he was on a show, um, you know, a couple months ago, Ralph Tricky and I emailed back and forth a bit. He's, you know, he's the lead guy on uh, the Operational Art of War. Right. Right. And you know we have this we have this conversation sort of you know about where war games are where strategy games are and one of the things he he brought up is that he looks he looks at the the iOS market um, 
you know the the XBLA market as as such hopeful scenes because they've 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 kind of been able to divorce themselves from what hardcore strategy came to how hardcore strategy came to be defined on the PC and they they they're this place where kind of some basic assumptions have been able to be rethought and they they borrow much more freely from board game mechanics you know simplicity simplicity is a good thing you you've got you've got limited inputs you you know they're meant to be played sort of on the go in short sessions um right and there's 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 a lot that's liberating about that i i i completely agree with that i mean i think that you know we went through a, a bit of a spate on this podcast where we did a lot of really heavy games i mean i i, I seem to recall like this phase where we went from war in the pacific to uh, hearts of iron to i think we did we did something on europa universalis and then we did victoria and then we did uh that we did uh you know east india company and i have to tell you that started to feel a little bit like the baton death march to me right because one of those games once in a while like once a year a big huge fat game where i gotta read a 40 page manual just to understand what's going on in the first quarter of the game that's great but as a constant diet of gaming I don't have the stomach for that anymore. I don't have the time for it anymore. Well, especially especially when a lot of those games are just going to be average. You know, they can be I mean, they can be as big as they want to be, but I mean just you know, not all going to be right, great. This many games come out, a lot of them are just going to be okay and it doesn't matter if it's got, you know, if it's if it's got every single aspect of, you know, human history. It's just it's it's a huge unwieldy <laughs> decent game. And that's Well, and and, well, but I mean, to be fair, I mean, a lot of these games, I think, harken back to an era when, you know, when I was when I was in college and I was deep in strategy gaming, right? And and I was on, I don't know, you know, stone tablets and chisels or whatever PC I used back at the time in college, you know, in the late 80s, right? I would get a big fat game and I would just, I would dive into it. Something like, you know, we went, we went and we played... Um, Dominions three, right? A big fat game like that with tons of meat. Who cares what it looks like, right? That was the kind of game that could absorb me for effectively a year, right? I may be playing other stuff too, but that was like my strategy go-to game. And in some ways, part of the problem is that I, you know, I, I I'm gonna get hate mail for saying this, but we have we have we have studios like I don't know. You know, either either you know, Paradox or Matrix or you know these these studios that keep supporting these great small strategy developers that give them publishing platforms. It's impossible to play all of these things and give them any of that kind of attention, unless this was all you did all day long. And I mean, because that's kind of my ba- beat. A lot of days that that kind of is all I do. You know, all day long, uh, and that's that's <laughs> that's a that's a grim reality uh, at times. Let me tell you. Um, but but even you, I mean, it's like honestly, how much time have you gone back and put into East India Company? Oh, uh, none. Right. I mean, right. So like, once you got through the initial blush of, hey, this game launched, I want to give it a good ten, fifteen hour run, see what it's really made of, have an opinion on it. it it's not absorbing your year anymore because there's going to be another dozen of those games in the next. Right, and I think, you know, and it used to be that there were only there were only 
people who did this for a living who found themselves in this situation, you know, where, boy, I, I, there's just too many games, you know, because you're getting all of them. Now, I mean, you know, a Steam sale is going on right now. You know, oh my I God, mean, did you see the Paradox Steam sale, which had like 70 games in it for $70 oh or God. something yeah, like that? I mean, this is th- this is the thing. It's like none of us live, none of us live in that world. Uh, that you know, you went to college in that I was, you know, in oh god, was I in grade school? Probably. Um, <laughs> none of us. You were in diapers, baby. None of us. None of us live in that world where it's like, man, you know what I need is a game that's going to occupy me from January first through December thirty first. Like none of us, <laughs> right? None of us really have that but, need. But you know what, Civ two, Civ four, kind of did that for me, right? I mean, there there have been games that had done that for me in the past, but well. Uh, I think those I think those games probably still you know still come about just just a little more rarely. Part of it's you know we have we have less time, and so it's even if we want to, we can't quite give ourselves over to it. But you know, this week I I picked up uh, Alpha Centauri again. I was I've been playing Alpha Centauri oh, for last last week or so, so. Good. and we'll we'll be doing a show on it. But I was just you know it's one of those things you forget how good a game is, and you forget how rich rich a game is. And then, and then you come back to it, and you think, "My God, you know, I can totally see why this why this occupied like two years, you know, two years of this being my strategy game, you know." And those, right. and go on, and for and for some, and I also get that for some gamers, that's very much the world they live in, right? I know plenty of gamers; the only strategy game that they play is Civ, or the only strategy game they play is StarCraft, and that's great, right? That's awesome. Right, but but to bring this back a little bit to where we sort of started when we were talking about card-based mechanics, I think where we, you know, the reason we got off on this wild tangent here um, was because we were talking about this sort of this sort of desire for simplicity, right? And and it, that desire for simplicity, I think, is as much to counterbalance this seemingly ever-increasing complexity that we have in in this deep, deep corner of strategy gaming that that we, you and I talk about all the time. Um, you know th- that does seem a bit much sometimes, and and I think that's why things like a game that's based on cards seems so approachable, yeah. and still gives us that constant stream of interesting decisions. Yeah, I mean, it, we we spend so much time sort of dining on this really rich strategic fair fair that I mean sometimes the the simple you know and wholesome strategy meal that a board game can provide. I mean, that's exactly what you want. You know, it's right. it's just it, it's you know it's it's not going to it's not going to be hard to take, and it's exactly yep. what you expect. Yep. yep, I think that covers it. That it does. Um, anyway, thanks thanks for listening to us this uh, this last hour. Uh, hopefully, next week we're going to be able to put together a slightly more structured show. Uh, it's been a bit chaotic, what with everyone being on vacation and uh, technical difficulties, sort of torpedoing our every attempt to rally the show. Birth, birth of a country. He yeah, it's that, just, just little stuff. Uh, before we go, uh, one special congratulations to a friend of the show, Darius Kazimi and Courtney Stanton on getting married. Uh, congratulations, you guys. Uh, I hope you have many happy years to look forward to. And on right. that note, uh, see you all next week. Good night. <laughs>